Welcome. It is wonderful to have you. It is wonderful to have this gorgeous weather happening in our sanctuary this evening. I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, the last two weeks uh, for Palm Sunday and Easter, we've been in Luke, but we are jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. As we've been going through Matthew, we've kind of entitled this as Your Kingdom Come. And here we are looking at uh, the last several months, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and now we are starting to draw this uh, Sermon on the Mount to a close, or Jesus is bringing it to a close. And of course, remember, as we're reading chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, this is uh, one message that Jesus is teaching, and uh, some historians and theologians believe that this was a common message that he was teaching. That this was a normal message that this, and we see a very similar message in Luke, that this was something that Jesus was continually teaching to his disciples as he traveled around. So Jesus is now starting to bring to a close, and we've called this the greatest message by the greatest pastor ever, the chief shepherd. As Jesus is bringing this to a close, we start to see him wrap up the things that he has been talking about. He is starts to call back to chapter 5 and chapter 6. Of course, back then it wasn't chapter 5 and chapter 6. And he starts to give this very practical application, but something I want you to remember that as Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount, he is not talking. The people that have gathered there on the mountainside are considered Jesus' disciples, not the 12 that we would consider, but those that have been following Jesus are on this mountainside. He's teaching them. These are not uh, these rebellious, anti-God Gentiles that he is talking to. Uh, Thus, when we keep saying him say, uh, don't be a hypocrite, don't be a hypocrite, that's what the pagans do. Uh, What he's saying is, you were saying that you were following me, and so what Jesus is continually doing, uh, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but continually throughout uh, any of the Gospels, and what he's continuing to do for us today is he is challenging where our heart is. He is challenging what our motives are. Why are we going about? And, and he's saying that he's, he's looking at these people who, who claim to know and follow him, who claim to be his disciples, who claim to live according to what God has asked of them. They claim to be on their way to eternity with him. And yet Jesus, who knows the hearts and the minds, meaning he knows the motives and the beliefs of all the people that he's looking at, are challenging them to their very core. The unfortunate thing I have to tell you is he is doing the exact same thing to us today. That the word of God is living and active. That it isn't a historical manuscript that was meant for something long ago. That it is continually, it is, it is who Jesus is. It is Jesus declaring who God is in the word of God. And so when we come to these passages It's just as powerful to us today as it was to them. Let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus continues, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when 
all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, I love how he says that. If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It's hard to preach through a message like this because I believe most of you are like me in that we've never made a snap judgment on anyone. So all of this is just for other people, and next week we'll talk about lying. Now the overarching theme here is, as he was going through chapter 6, we talked about these are very... uh, specific spiritual disciplines that Jesus is communicating. If you want to have fellowship with me, uh, pray. If you want to have fellowship with me, spend time getting to know me, commune with me, fellowship with me. I gotta, you might throw me that water bottle right there. Really quick. Sorry. I've been losing my voice all week and it almost went out on me there. So through chapter... Six, he's explaining what we said to these spiritual disciplines. This is how we actually grow in Christ, is spending time with him and, and learning from him, communing with him, uh, fasting, relying on him, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And here in chapter 7, he starts to show us how to live these out. How do we have this gospel living? How do we represent the kingdom of God here on earth? And so I wanted to kind of give a big picture as we go through these passages. Number one is getting the slightest grasp on God's sovereignty changes everything. We are humans. We cannot ever, I'm convinced, properly grasp just what that means, that God is in control of all things, that nothing takes him by surprise, that he's never caught off guard, that God is sovereign, that God has a reason for everything. I've mentioned many times working in rehab centers, working in inner city ministries, uh, directing camps for inner city kids, and just working with uh, different groups of people who a lot of society has given up on or, or doesn't want to spend any time with. And some of the things you see Put it this way, we've had several people that were on fire for God, college students, who we would hire, and in three months they were complete atheists. That's not an exaggeration. Wondering if there really is a God, how could he let this happen? And what it taught me in working in these different places is that God is in control of all things. That God allows people to experience things, not because that's what he wants, but because 
sin is very real as well. When we start to see it as that God is in control, but in God's control, he has this beautiful plan that he has these sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sin, but because of what he did in this loving act that we've celebrated last week of sending his son to earth (coughs) to pay our ransom, to take the punishment that we deserved, because of those things that he has an answer to sin and death, that we are representatives in that, that we are ambassadors in that, that that's how God demonstrates his power is that he can use sinners like you and myself to represent him, demonstrating that he has defeated sin and death. The second big picture, and this doesn't originate from John Piper, but I heard him say it. He said, the Bible is not a string of pearls, but rather a chain of linked thoughts. Meaning that when we approach the Bible, I, I call it, we have a tendency to make band-aids out of it. Something's wrong, so we take this verse, we stick it on the thing that's wrong, and hopefully that makes it go away. That heals the wound. The Bible isn't this, as they call, string of pearls or, or a, a bead that you just have, and it's pretty when it's put together, but rather this chain of linked thoughts that we must use the Bible to interpret the Bible, that, that God does not contradict himself. And so when we approach different passages like these, it's very important to put it in its context, because some of these verses are some of the most taken out of context verses I've heard. And so hopefully we can get somewhat of a grasp on that this evening. So I want to look back at verses 1 through 5. I'm very sorry. <coughs> verses 1 through 5 again. They didn't tell me about the allergies that you can endure when you move to South Carolina. 1 through 5. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we think of sawdust and like a two-by-four, a piece of wood. But these are actually, could mean an actual splinter is this speck. And when he says this Plank, that is the main structure, the main beam that would run along the top of the house that the roof would go up to. And so this is a huge exaggeration very much on purpose. So as we examine this, something that we must remember is Jesus is being very, very clear, and this is what he's pointing out. And I think for us, my, my title for this part is Gospel-Centered Humility leads to self-awareness. Gospel-centered humility leads to self-awareness. We all, myself included, and you can tell me if I'm wrong afterwards, we all, as humans, I've heard it said, we are all born with a bias. We are all born with a bias, and depending on where you grew up, how you grew up, your family, your family structure, your influences, you've been trained to have biases towards, or biases, biases towards other people. We as sinners born into sin, we, it is natural for us to judge other people. <coughs> we judge based on color. We judge based on 
where you live, what street you're on, what part of Somerville you live in. If you live in Somerville, you're judged based on the state you're from. You're judged based on the country you're from. You're judged, and there's so much that we allow to play into it. What, what's, what's your favorite sports team? Oh, I know about you people. There's so much that we allow to play into these bias that we are constantly, every day, and I think that's what Jesus is doing when he's saying this, is we are constantly making snap judgments on people. We are constantly, and what ends up happening is we forget how much we need God and his grace and mercy every day. So I would continue to say you must preach the gospel to yourself every day. Why? Because this starts with humility. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day. It helps us to understand who we are at our core. It starts to help us to have the ability to be self-aware because we all have a tendency to think differently about ourselves. One of my favorite bosses I've ever had, he would always tell me, Rob, you can't see the label from inside the bottle. You live inside the bottle. You have to have people you trust to tell you what the label says. We are incredibly bad at reading our labels. There was a commercial several years ago that was on television, and they, uh, a sketch artist, a police sketch artist, sat down with different women and had them describe themselves without a mirror to him, and he'd sketch them. And all, it was really sad, and all these women were describing themselves as uh, looking much older and much more tired and much more than they actually were. It wasn't a real view of how they looked. And the sketch artist would show them the picture, and they'd say, yeah, that, that's it. And then you'd see them like, oh, my goodness, they have such a poor view of themselves. And then some brilliant YouTuber did a mock with men. And he'd sit down with these different men who were not good-looking, and they would describe themselves as strong-jawed, in great shape. And, and it was really funny, but unfortunately, it's kind of true. We all have a terrible view of ourselves one way or the other. But not just in how we look, more importantly, we have a terrible view of where we are spiritually. And when we talk, when we think of, of judging others and making snap judgments on others, the people that we think of are the Pharisees or, or who we should think of. And I've said it before, but the Pharisees, I always think, man, I really hate these people when I read about them in the Bible. And I said, well, why do I hate them so much? Oh, because it's me. I know this person, and I really don't like this person, and that person is me. What they did was they would set themselves up. During the, what we call the 400 years of silence, they began to exist, and they would set themselves up as the standard of spirituality. And then they would let you know if you were doing it or not. And we think, that's horrible. But every day we do that in our lives. We have self-appointed ourselves as the standard for parenting, our jobs, our marriages, all of these different things. If you think I'm wrong, go to a park and just listen. And you will hear a group of moms tell you what's wrong with every other mom out of earshot. And they will medically tell you what's wrong with every child's problem and what they are and what they have. It's amazing. This is what we do. We all become psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors. Our field of expertise is amazing. 
when we jump to conclusions about people, we take the place of God. We have self-appointed ourselves. We demonstrate that we do not need God because we have appointed ourselves as the standard in which all humans should achieve or work towards. Well, I did this. I don't know why they're not. I mean, I went. I worked really hard. Why aren't they doing that? They should go get a job. It was very easy for me to get a job. We make incredibly quick snap judgments on everyone we encounter. The big problem with this is, and we would never say this, but we're deciding who we share the gospel with and who we think is valuable enough to hear it. Because in our inability to be self-aware of who we are, we start to make judgments on everyone, not realizing that we are no different than the Pharisees. So gospel-centered humility leads to self-awareness. Why? Because we start every morning realizing that we are sinners that have been saved by grace. If you know Jesus, if you, are, if you have believed that Jesus is the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life and you are walking with him every morning, we must preach the gospel to ourselves knowing how desperate we are for him and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. When we start there, we start to become more self-aware as we look at others and we see them as people who are in desperate need of God's mercy, grace, forgiveness, joy, peace, love, and the attributes go on and on. And when we hold back from sharing that with them, we have become a self-appointed judge deciding whether or not they're good enough or we like them enough to share the gospel with them. Then we get to verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I believe this is an exercise in discernment. But again, we've, I've seen both of these passages taken so far out of context. Well, Rob, judge not lest ye be judged. I grew up in a KJV home. And it was normally, I usually get permission from my siblings before I tell stories of them, and I didn't do this. It was normally my sister would have another guy she liked. And I'd be like, that guy's bad news. You shouldn't date him. Rob, judge not. It's like, I didn't, but the actual judge did. Which would lead to a huge argument fight. And so I've seen that, and we have to tie it in with with discernment. But I've also seen this passage, the uh, swine and the dogs. Now, remember, dogs and pigs, this is the worst insult at this time. We think of dogs, I mean, we have dogs at church. Yeah, I won't speak to, but going way back in history, no offense, Oscar. Dogs were, they roamed the streets, they ate dead or dying carcasses. Um, they, we hear threats even as you read through the Old Testament, New Testament. To call somebody a dog was one of the worst insults. The only possible insult that was worse than that in Jewish culture was to call someone a pig, an unclean animal that ate everything. If you've never spent time, like 
Most of the pigs you've probably seen are farm animals that aren't more than a year or two old. The pigs are nasty creatures. Uh, Noah Postel's here. Noah can fill you all in on wild hogs. He has plenty. I just found out Noah has trouble getting to his car. He was out in Harleyville. Not that I'm making any judgments on Harleyville. But these wild hogs will be between his house and his car. Uh, and they're just nasty creatures. And they will eat humans. And they will eat human flesh. And uh, they're just these horrible creatures, let alone tying into the law of they are the most unclean animal that you were never to touch as a Jewish person. I've heard this verse used as talking about a fellow believer in a church, and not on just one occasion. So to kind of understand this, and we'll talk about more at length next week, we are not to judge, but I will say that we, we are to be fruit inspectors. Galatians 5, walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh, the, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5 versus what it looks like to walk in the flesh, and we can, we can see these things. Uh, uh, for myself as a pastor, or uh, what I take very literally, a shepherd of a flock, I am told to protect my flock of sheep from wolves that are coming in to seek and devour people in my flock that I'm responsible to God towards. And so there's a bit of protection there, and again, we'll get into that more next week as we continue in chapter 7, but I want you to think of uh, sharing the gospel with someone who is, uh, and again, I've worked in rehab, so sharing the gospel with somebody who is extremely intoxicated and, and belligerent and unable to comprehend what you are saying or um, very bad reasons uh, for wanting to get close to you or wanting to have something happen, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but we have to be discernment, and as we get into chapter 10 of Matthew, we'll spend more time on that as well, but something that is important in saying all of that is we are never to be the ones to decide whether someone is worthy of hearing the gospel, but we should also know when it's time to pull back. So we can still love and pray for people and meet people's needs, but also using discernment and wisdom, and a lot of that comes in I love Proverbs, three different times of Proverbs. It's basically saying, seek counsel from godly, wise people. If you are not sure, seek out godly, wise people. In the, in the multitude of counselors, there is victory. And we also, in 2 Thessalonians 5.19, we do not want to quench the Holy Spirit. Because I've seen this used as an excuse to not share the gospel with people or to not get together with them. And again, there's a big difference between someone who doesn't know the Lord and a, someone that the Bible that Jesus would call dogs and pigs. The second thing I want to look at, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good, in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And I've kind of said this point is gospel living as ambassadors for God's kingdom. We are to be gospel living as ambassadors for God's Kingdom. We go back to chapter 5 where we are told to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That when we fast, it should 
teach us to rely on God and, and Him supplying all of our needs. And that's what this passage is saying. And again, I've seen this passage taken so far out of context, it's hurtful. But when you look at it, and we have to understand this illustration, he says, if your son asks for bread, who will give him a stone? Well, at the time when we read about this was a normal meal, was a fish and loaves. And a loaf was a small white, something like this, just of a piece of bread or a, a little tiny loaf of bread, and it resembled a stone. He's saying, what of you fathers, if your child says, I'm hungry, would think it was hilarious to hand a hungry child a stone? Or the fish that they would eat out of the galley. Again, I wasn't a fisherman back then. This is just what I've read. Feel free to argue with me. They were almost like an eel-like small fish. And so it would be easy to switch it out for a snake. And again, your child comes up to you, Dad, I'm hungry. And you're like, oh, here, you're going to like this. And it turns out it's a living viper. And you're dying laughing. Oh, man, I got him so good. That was a poisonous snake. You didn't even see it coming. And he's saying, you would never do that. As a loving father to your child, you would never do that. And he reminds them, and you guys are evil. You humans are evil. So how much more will that not be the case with God in heaven? And what gets taken out of context that I've seen it used is that if we really ask for that boat, if we really ask for that mansion, if we really ask to win the lottery, God's going to do it because God loves his children. It's very hard to explain it that way in persecuted countries. It's very hard to explain it that way when you look at what happened to every disciple. So let's put this in its proper context. That first word, ask. That is, like he says, a child. But a child approaching their father at this time is much different now, where at two years old, your child is making unbelievable demands of you. Not that I have a two-year-old. But it's coming to God in humility. When we ask God for something, we, we come to God in humility. When we went through the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6, we understand that what we are to do in everything is to make God's name hallowed, revered, loved. So we come to him in humility like a child asking for something that they can't reach, that's out of their grasp, because that's what we are. We are helpless children coming to a loving, perfect, holy, sovereign God. And so we ask, ask, seek. Uh, this is like someone who, um, they ask for prayer for a new job. Hey, I'm trying to find a new job. Just be praying I can find one. And you're like, well, what are you doing about it? And they're like, I've made a goal. I'm going to apply four times every day. I'm going to follow up on those. I'm going to make visits at the place and ask for an in-person interview. And they give you this whole thing. And that's kind of what uh, uh, seeking is, is this is um, actively pursuing. So I'm going to pray for my friend's um, salvation, but I'm also going to follow up with them. I'm going to make sure I'm getting lunch with them once a week. I'm going to check in on them. I want to see how well they're doing what they need. I know they've hit a rough patch, so I'm going to make sure that uh, we get them groceries because I know they don't have a car that works right now. It is this actively pursuing. So we ask as a helpless child, knowing that we need God's help in all things. We seek, meaning we are active, not just praying, but we are active in it. And then knocking is, it demonstrates this perseverance in asking and seeking. 
that knocking like you were caught in a storm and you must get inside the house. And so you are going to knock and knock and knock because you know they're in there. and They've got to let you in. But we have to take all of these things into the context. Another verse that is drastically taken out of context, Psalm 37, 4. God will give you the desires of your heart. And I've heard that misused so many times. But if you read all of Psalm 37, you'll realize that it is this relationship that's happening. As we draw near to God, as we start to see what God wants, as we start to see what God desires, our desires start to mimic his desires. And all of a sudden, the things of the world pass away. We talked a couple weeks ago what it is to have an eternal mindset, that we start to see that everything here on earth, the things that will not last for eternity, a lot of times that's what we spend the most amount of our attention and time and money on. But as we start to live as ambassadors for God's kingdom, as we start to humble ourselves, the things of this world, as the hymn says, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God is not in the deceiving business. What we have to do is evaluate what are we actually asking for? What are we actually seeking? What are the things that we persevere about? We asked the question a couple weeks ago, when's the last time that you shed tears because somebody you know doesn't know the Lord and you can't imagine life without knowing that forgiveness, without knowing that love, without knowing that peace and that joy, and your heart is broken? That is the perseverance that we should be coming to God with for our, what, our lost neighbors and family members and friends as we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we pursue it at all costs. So how do we apply this? How do we see this play out? I'm so glad you asked. Luke chapter 18 Starting in verse 9, and this is a story that Jesus tells, a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, that's those that judge, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus concludes the story. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, says, The Pharisee tried to justify himself, but he was not justified. The tax collector relied only on God's mercy, and he was justified. Every morning when we preach the gospel to ourselves, what are you relying on? Are you relying on your work ethic, what you've done, 
who you've made yourself to be? Have you appointed yourself as the judge and jury that goes around just throwing out prescriptions and throwing out, what do doctors make? There's a word. Hmm? Diagnosis, thank you. Struggling. I was just seeing if any of you knew it. We go around diagnosing everybody and their problems and whether they're good enough to be our friend or whether we'll spend time with them or what they should do or this is how easy it was for me, why don't they do it? We want everybody to justify themselves to us. When we come to God and we understand that we are so desperately in need of his grace and mercy, that because of what God did for us, those who have who have Jesus as their forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life can wake up every morning thankful. They begin every day in, in humility, understanding where they could be if not for what Jesus accomplished. So we start the day in humility, understanding who we are. This helps us to be self-aware. This helps us to love others around us. This helps us to treat as we go into the final part, in verse 12, Jesus finishes this section by saying, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. The golden rule. He finishes, for this sums up the law of the prophets. Imagine that, the entire Old Testament summed up in this phrase. He goes on later on in Matthew when they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? This is the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this, almost the same thing. On this is all the law and the prophets. Can be summarized that easy. Someone said, the entire word of God is that easy. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. The rest of the Bible is explaining it to us who struggle so badly in making that happen. The rest of it is just uh, helping us understand different situations we find ourselves in and how to live this out. Treat others the way that we want to be treated. For the application I've just wrote, the way we treat others is telling of what we truly believe about God. The way we treat others, the way we treat people that we come in contact with, the way we treat the guy that cut us off, the way we treat the barista who just can't get our name right. The way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our children, co-workers, family members. The way we treat others is truly telling what we believe about God. We have received grace and mercy. Therefore, we should continually be extending grace and mercy to those that we encounter. Remember last week, we talked about this is how God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, in other words, while we were in continual disobedience to God, while we continued to reject God in every decision that we made every day, he gave his life for us. He took our punishment. He took our sins to the grave. He defeated sin and death, knowing that we could not on our own power. So how does that play out in our life? 
what things this week are going to change? When you encounter that guy at work you're going to see Monday. When you're driving. How do we start to evaluate people? How do we start to view people as God views them?